Lord's Day 4, question 9 asks, But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? So in other words, isn't it unjust for God to require perfection from us? Isn't this simply a burden too heavy for us to bear? Why such a strict standard? Why does God require perfection over us, knowing that we struggle, knowing that we can't meet the task or meet the requirement? Isn't this unjust or overbearing for God to require this from us? And how does this not deter one away from God, becoming so frustrated, trying to do good, but failing, and at the end of the day just saying, I've had enough, I, I can't meet the standard, I can't meet up to the task, I feel overwhelmed. How does this not deter somebody from the faith? So common objections people have regarding the concept of God's requirement of perfection is, how can God command me? to do something that I am unable to do. He knows I can't do it. He knows I can't fill the requirement which he's asking. So then how is this fair? How is this even a reasonable requirement of me? Requiring this guarantees that I'm doomed to fail. It leaves me with no hope whatsoever. So that's the question. These are some of the objections. The answer in the catechism is, no, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. So the Bible teaches this in the sense that God created us perfect. But we robbed ourselves when we sided with Satan in the garden. So the consequences that we face today are our own. So the answer to the many objections that arise from this, is God an unjust God? The answer is clearly no. God is not unjust for requiring us to live perfectly. He's not unjust for us to, for God to judge us for we, the sins that we commit. And the question is, why? Why is God not unjust for requiring us to be perfect even though we can't meet the standard? The answer, because God created us in a state of perfection. Humanity chose to disobey him. We chose to live the way that we wanted. And the result is, we have now become slaves to the sin that we chose. We were perfect. Adam and Eve were perfect and could have remained that way if they so chose. So humanity has done this to themselves. We chose to side with Satan in the garden. Choices have consequences. God is not unjust for requiring us to be perfect. He's the one who created us perfect in his image. It is our responsibility as image bearers of God to perfectly reflect him in everything we do. He's not gonna lower his standards simply because we have chosen to live a lifestyle of sin. His standard still remains. So question 10, will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? The answer is certainly not. He is terribly displeased with our original sin 
as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law, citing Galatians 3.10. So we see a couple concepts here in question 10, original sin. What is that? It's referring to the eating of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, they willfully chose to disobey God and his commandments, and they willfully chose to follow the counsel of the serpent. So the original sin is what brought sin into the human race. And from Adam and Eve, original sin has passed down to each and every one of us. Actual sin, is the other one mentioned here, are all the sins that we personally commit since birth. God's going to judge both. And he is just for doing this. And this is where I believe the tension exists for many believers and also for many um, non-believers. We believe that we're generally good people. Yes, we admit we sin. And sometimes we sin more than we should. But deep down we think, you know, I'm just a good person. I have this sin. I struggle with certain things. I try to do my best. Why would God not accept that? The problem is sin has so greatly distorted our judgment. We're so good at seeing the sins of other people. We have a great difficulty seeing not just our own sins, but the level of sin that we commit. We fail to see our own grievous nature, our, the level of depravity that exists within our heart. We're so good at overlooking this, and we're so good at seeing it in other people. We self-justify all the time. We don't take our sin serious enough. We lessen this, meaning we water it down. We don't focus on it as much as we should in order to get by in life, because if we really had a true sense of our own sin, if we really understood the sins that we commit, and even in the good actions that we do, the sin that is behind our good actions, if we really had a true sense of this, we wouldn't be able to bear the reality of it. I think it would overwhelm us. So what do we do? We suppress it. And in our suppressing, of the sins, we choose to focus only on the good that we do, and we fail to see the evil that we do. We don't have a realistic or a balanced understanding as the to the true amount or the true level of sin that exists within our hearts. But God doesn't. God does not have a false sense of our sin. God does not suppress the reality of our sin. God hates our sin. He has to hate our sin or he wouldn't be just. So an example is a drop of oil being put into a glass of water. If you watch somebody just put a little teaspoon of oil in the glass of water that you're drinking, would you drink it? Now, if you were out to eat at dinner and you saw somebody put a drop of oil in one of your children's glasses, of water, would you allow your kids to drink it? What would you do? You would dump it out, you would throw it away, but it's just a drop of oil. It's just one drop. I mean, most of the water is still, it's still almost 99% water. You have that 1% of oil. What's the big deal? Can't you just drink 
the water with the oil? Can't you just allow your children to drink the oil with the water? Plus, if you saw somebody place a drop of oil in your kid's glass, would you simply say, oh, it's just a little drop? Or would you seek out justice for the action that was done? Of course you would. You would not just simply let that go by, let the person just walk away. You would want justice for that one little drop of oil. So think of it from God's perspective. He is holy. He is pure. He's like, if you were to take water from um, a drinking fountain and purify it seven times, there's no impurities in it whatsoever. And then you just take a simple drop of oil and put it in that glass. It's no, it's contaminated water. Just think if you put a whole quart of oil or a whole gallon of oil in a large bucket and mixed a little water with it. See how the level of sin and the amount of oil really isn't the problem. It's so, the issue is how corrupt our nature and our hearts are. Even the slightest hint of sin is horribly offensive to God, just like the slightest amount of poison in a glass of water is harmful to our bodies. See, the problem is we're always viewing the degree of our sin from our own sinful perspective. Our hearts distort the reality of how disgusting our human nature really is. But God sees us perfectly. He gives us the perfect diagnosis of our hearts. He sees how evil we are. And like the person who places only one drop of oil in your children's cup, God must judge us for our sinful actions. He must judge us for the injustices that we do. We may see them as small and harmless, but to God who is pure, these are great offenses. So then question 11, but is God not also merciful? And yes, God is merciful. And we're going to get into this on Lord's Day 5. We'll get into the mercy of God. But in the answer here, God is indeed merciful, but he's also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God, he also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. So looking at punishment, and it's a difficult topic today, a lot of people don't like to hear about this. What is punishment? Punishment's a debt that is due to the essential injustice of God, or to the justice of God, so to speak. So it's a debt that is due because God is just. Justice due to the violation of the law broken by an individual. God determines the measure of punishment by which the nature of the offense is. He repays everyone according to their deeds, which is a very scary concept. It's a very sobering concept, but it's true. In order for God to be just, he must repay everybody according to their deeds. So then why is there punishment? Punishment exists to vindicate God's righteousness. Sin must have its due. Sin must be punished. Justice requires punishment. The holiness of God must be honored. So the standard of all righteousness, we must all adjust to the standard. The standard is God himself. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. 
A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So if we find difficulty with this, it's probably because our hearts are in a state of imbalance in understanding why God has to be just in the concept of justice to begin with. Psalm 62.12 says, And with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and you reward everybody according to what they have done. God is perfectly just. He is perfectly loving. Both of these are true. But in the 21st century, within the Christian circles, within the past about 100, 150 years, we've shifted most of the emphasis on the love of God. And we've set aside the justice of God. We don't want to talk about that. We feel that in our evangelism, if we talk about God's justice, it's going to deter people away. They're not going to want to hear. And what we're saying is our faith really isn't in the power of the word of God. Our faith is in our ability to convince people that God is love. And if God is love, people are going to easily, more readily accept him. People might go to church more. But if we talk about the justice of God, and we talk about the everlasting punishment that is due because of our sin, we feel as though that's negative, and we don't bring that to the front. We put that more to the back. What we're saying is we really don't have faith in the power of the Word of God. Rather, our faith is placed in our ability to convince somebody in their mind that God is a God of love only. We're not presenting the whole picture of God. So the question is, is it true that God is not angry with the sinner, but loves the sinner? And because God loves all people equally, he's forced to punish. The answer is no. The penalty of sin does not come from God's love or his mercy. The penalty of sin comes from God's justice. So there's a distinction between those who God punishes and those who God chastises. There's a difference. God disciplines. God chastises those he has chosen to redeem in love. He doesn't do this with all people. He just does this with his own. God punishes those who are evil, those who do not repent, and those who God allows to continue in their sin. So a couple verses here. God loves and chastises his own. Psalm 6.1 Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Or discipline me in your wrath. Psalm 94 12, blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law. Psalm 118 18, the Lord has chastised me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Proverbs 3 11 and 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights. In Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So there's a category for those who God disciplines, who God chastises. It's his own. Those who belong to him. Those whom Christ has united to himself through faith. But on the flip side, God hates and he punishes the unbeliever who opposes him. Psalm 5.5, 5. the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Nahum 1.12, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we see here that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against those people. In Romans 2.5, But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we see that against his enemies. We see that against the unbeliever, God's wrath, God's justice, God's judgment. Chastisement also deters the believer from sin, meaning its purpose is to cause the backslidden Christian to look back and confess out of a sad heart the sins of the past. And we would refer to this as godly sorrow. Looking back on the past, being a believer, choosing to live according to the lifestyle of the world, choosing to live according to the appetites of their sin nature. As a believer doing this, God chastises the person. Why? Why does the Lord do this? It's a way of keeping a believer from committing or going back to the former sinful ways. The painful experience of God's discipline actually works for our good. So God's chastisement is a form of grace to the believer. It's a reminder of how much God hates sin. It's also a reminder of how much God loves holiness and what it took for the Lord to purchase us out of the slave market of sin. Now for us to turn around and go back into that lifestyle, the Lord will not allow us to do this. There's just too much love and compassion. All of that sin was placed upon Christ on the cross. It's been done away with. We still can fall into these types of traps. God brings his discipline just to give us a taste of what it was like to be formerly in the world and hopefully from that, the godly sorrow that is produced from those experiences, we no longer want to go back and taste and see what the world has to offer. So another question is, what is the basis and what is the standard for administering punishment to the wicked? The answer for the believer is God himself. God is the standard for all punishment. There exists no final principle on which punishment can be based other than the justice of God. All punishment presupposes an authority over those who have violated the law. Ultimately, that presupposed authority is God himself and his character. But we have to be careful here of developing an unbalanced view of God. He is the God of both justice and righteousness. If we focus too much on the justice of God and not on the righteousness of God, we become legalistic. If we focus too much on the righteousness of God and not on the justice of God, we become antinomian or lawless, careless in our actions. God by no means clears the guilty. Yet he is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger. He upholds the rights of the poor and the afflicted, the widow and the orphan. So he judges the guilty, but he's also merciful and gracious. So punishment originates in the righteousness or the punitive justice of God. He is holy, and because of this, he demands holiness and righteousness from us, from every human being, because every human being is an image bearer of God, and the responsibility of that is to live perfectly and holy in righteousness. So the question is, what happens if God is taken out of the equation? How would justice be defined? 
and how would justice be implemented? And the moment God's justice is denied, absolutes are abandoned. The nature of punishment either collapses altogether, resulting in anarchy or lawlessness, or justice is defined and enforced by the totalitarian elite, meaning the ruling class of the time. So when God's justice or any concept of God is set aside or abandoned, it only goes in one or two ways. It goes into anarchy and lawlessness, or a ruling class takes over and enforces their own system of justice. So what this shows us is justice cannot be administered properly without having the true source of justice to go along with it, which is God himself. When God is abandoned, when God is misused, when God is misunderstood or misinterpreted, we either have anarchy or totalitarianism. It can either go one of the two ways. And anarchy is self-law. Everybody just does what they want to do. We see this here. If we look at history, 1215, the Magna Carta. And also, we see this in Romans 13. But the Magna Carta placed the government under God. The government is not to function by itself with nobody over it. But when God is taken out of the way, kind of like we see in our secular culture today, God has been set aside and the establishment elite is now setting the precedence. Humanity now has the final say. They become the elite who imposes their system of justice on the people. Whoever is in charge gets to rule as they see fit. And cruel and unusual punishment now becomes arbitrary. It's not a set standard based upon the character of God anymore. It's based upon the whim of the elite who are in charge. Who to punish and how is now decided by them. So which is why we see in communism country, communist countries in, in the 20th century, over 100 million people being executed. Because that's how Stalin, that's how Lenin, that's how Pol Pot, that's how Mao Zedong decided to rule over their people, to execute based upon whatever they saw fit at the time. That's the totalitarian side. But in Romans 13, we see that God has called us to submit to those ruling authorities in which he has appointed. Romans 13 says, pay your taxes. So we don't want to be anarchists. We don't want to be rebels. We don't want to be ruled by self-law. This is also a violation of God's law. So it goes both ways. When God is taken out, we see totalitarianism. When God is taken out, we see anarchy. God has created government and justice and for us to live under those principles. But those principles exist because God exists. Once God is taken out of the way, anything becomes possible in that regard. As Herman Bovink says, the decline of the ancient Christian world has also resulted in the modification, indeed the abolishing and the banishment of the concepts of good and evil, responsibility and accountability, guilt and punishment. Society just simply starts to become undone, kind of like your shoe when it becomes untied, then it gets loosened, then the laces fall out, then eventually your foot slides out. That's kind of the decline that we see here in the past 100, 150 years here in the United States. The decline of the ancient Christian worldview in our country has resulted in the decline of our country as a whole. So along with belief in the justice of God, belief in justice on earth disappears as well. Atheism proved to be the annihilation of all justice and morality 
meaning no God, no master. Sin and crime are not traceable to the evil will of the individual person. People are not responsible for their own actions, but are generally speaking remnants or after effects of the animal ancestry of humans and to be explained in terms of their nature and their environment. So what Bob Inc. is saying here is absolute moral standards have been abandoned. Personal accountability and responsibility has been abandoned. People are products of their social environment. People just simply do what their brains tell them to do. No longer are people responsible for their own actions. There's an excuse. People are always claiming to be victim. They're never taking responsibility for their side of the story. And what we see here is when the justice of God has been taken out of society, everything becomes chaos. So what is the penalty of sin? We see in the scripture that the penalty for sin is our death, God's judgment, and wrath. So when we see death, the penalty of sin is death. It's referring to two types of death here. Spiritual death, which means separation from communion with God, having a guilty conscience and a polluted nature. A person can only live meaningfully if they have communion with the Lord. Spiritual death is the disconnect. It's the breaking of the relationship between us and the Lord. And because of original sin, we are all born spiritually dead. We are all born separate. We're all born enemies of God, which is why Jesus says we must be born again. So the penalty of sin is death, spiritual death, and also physical death. When the spirit leaves the body and the body's left on earth to decay, every person will be resurrected on the last day with their bodies to stand before God in judgment. This is also the person who dies in their sins and also the believer. Now, the person who's a believer and stands before God will be acquitted on the day of judgment, but the unbeliever will not. But both are going to stand before God in their physical body. So the penalty of sin is death, both spiritual and physical. The third one is eternal death, referred to the second death or the lake of fire. This is where we see God's wrath, his enduring justice from God to his enemies for all eternity. And when both body and soul, after it stands before God in judgment, is thrown into Gehenna or the lake of fire for all eternity. So this is the consequence of our sin. This needs to be brought up in evangelism. When we're speaking to people, yes, the love of God, the grace of God, the blood of Christ, grace through faith, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ are all important topics, and those all must be brought up when we evangelize. But so must sin, the penalty of our sin, resulting in death, judgment, and wrath. All of this has to be brought up because it's all reality. We're all going to stand before God. The only difference is, does the blood of Christ, has the blood of Christ been charged to our account or not? So the question is, does the Bible now teach capital punishment? Genesis 9.6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Notice this was given before the law of Moses. It was given during the Noahic covenant. People often argue that capital punishment does not slow down 
or prevent crime rates. So this is people's objection to the death penalty. It doesn't slow crime down. It, do it doesn't deter crime. States that enforce the death penalty have often have as many murderers per capita as states and nations that don't have the death penalty. So it doesn't slow down murder. So those who object to this say, stop, it's no longer effective. But people forget that this is not the purpose of capital punishment. Genesis 9 says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. It's teaching capital punishment. Why? For the purpose of retribution and for justice, not to slow down crime. A life for a life. That's God's standard. If you take a life, your life must be taken. This is just. This is just retribution. It's not for the fact of slowing down murders and crime rates. It's for the fact that this is the just punishment of taking a human life. So we see here under the old covenant of Moses, what were the sins by which a person was put to death under the Mosaic law? We have a list of them here. Sins that were able to have you put to death under the Mosaic law were murder, cursing or attacking a parent, disobedience to parents, kidnapping, failure to confine a dangerous animal, human sacrifice, sex with an animal, work on the Sabbath, incest, adultery, homosexuality, blasphemy, perjury, and false prophecy. So these were the sins of the time during the Mosaic economy that you were put to death for. Now, we are not under the Mosaic law, the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law today. These do not apply to us today. But it shows us God's attitude toward these types of sins. They show us the mindset of God and the degree to which our sins appear before him. All sin deserves judgment. All sin deserves God's wrath. There's no question there. Sin is what separates us from God. Sin is why there is pain and suffering in this world. But when we take a look at this list of sins, we're seeing that God had a special requirement under the Mosaic law during this time. People were put to death for these. So we can see why so many of these sins that are prevalent today are actually corroding our world from the core. It's not a question of economic status. It's not a question of education. It's not a question of where you are born. The problem in the world today is sin. Sin separates us from God. We are not living like he has created us to live. And because of this, we reap what we sow. And the wages of sin, according to Romans 3, is death.